Heavenly Father, we just love you. We praise you. We thank you for this beautiful morning. We thank you for the opportunity to be here this morning. Lord, we just pray that your Holy Spirit would fill each one of us, that you would fill this place to overflowing, that your Holy Spirit would overflow this building and spill out into the streets. Let Life Point Church be a beacon to a broken, hurting world all around us. Father, may your Holy Spirit do a mighty work in this place this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Ah, you may be seated. And I hope you guys will excuse me while we rearrange just a little bit here. Dwayne always makes it look so smooth. And uh, for those of you that don't know, my name is Matthew Robertson. I am the associate pastor here at Life Point Community Church. If you came here hoping to hear Dwayne, I'm sorry he's not here this weekend. You guys are stuck with me, but here, I'll, look, I'll do my best Dwayne impression for you, okay? Go dogs! There you go. That's it. I don't dance, so that's, that's all there is to it. You know, I, I was talking with the guys earlier this morning as we were getting prepared. Uh, we were getting prepared for the service, and, uh, you know, it, it's, it's a rare thing to, to, to be able to get up here and speak the word of God and have one of your children lead worship music. And I've been blessed to have it done twice, once with Christopher and now with Daniel. And uh, I, I, I just want to thank Daniel for coming in and stepping up and did an awesome job, buddy. I am just really, really proud of you. I'm just going to stick this in here. You guys can't tell what this is, can you? Okay. I don't want to be accused of product placement or anything. I guess I'll put it down here. And then I'll probably kick it off the stage later. Wow, this is high. <clears throat> All righty. Um, of course, Dwayne and Donna are, 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 and, and the rest of the Life family are all off uh, searching for God in the happiest place in the world, in the Magic Kingdom. So, and of course, we want to encourage them to, uh, whenever they have a chance to get away, and just recharge their batteries and refresh themselves. And, and just what, a, what an honor and a privilege it is to be able to, to step in and help them to be able to do that. And everybody in this church has worked so hard. And I want to give a special shout out to the praise team. For the last three weeks, they've been working without their leader, Donna, and uh, I think they have done a tremendous, tremendous job, and I think Donna has an awful lot to be proud of. So, uh, yeah, let, yeah, get, yeah, please. They, uh, they are an awesome bunch of people to work with, I'm telling you what. They really keep you on your toes, because they are dedicated. Um, all right, let's get started here. Um, we're, gonna, we're just going to go ahead and read. It's going to be, uh, the, the key verse for this morning comes from Hebrews chapter 6, verses 13 through 20. And uh, it, it is a little bit long, but it, it, it kind of forms a nice framework for everything that we're going to talk about today. So it says, For when God made the promise to Abraham, since God could swear by no one greater, he swore upon himself. God said, Surely I will bless and multiply you. And so, after Abraham patiently waited... He obtained the promise. Now, people swear by something greater than themselves. Moreover, in all their disputes, an oath is the final confirmation. So God desired all the more to convince the heirs of the promise that his purpose is unchangeable. So God guaranteed his promise with an oath. Thus, we have two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie. In the promise and the oath, we have strong encouragement to take a firm hold of the hope set before us. 
This hope is our sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. This hope enters behind the curtain into the inner place. Jesus has gone there as our forerunner, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. I don't know where you guys stand on, on, on this whole end times thing. I, I, I really don't. Every generation since Jesus came back to he- went back to heaven has been convinced that they're living in the end times. I don't know if we truly are living in the end times. No man da, can know that. But something is happening in the religious community today. You can see it here and in churches all around us. God seems to be calling his children to him and they seem to be responding. There's, 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 there's a pulse, there's, there's an undercurrent of, of excitement and activity I've never seen before, at least not at this level. And, and, and I read about it happening everywhere. I'm, I'm kind of a news junkie. I like paying attention to little bits of everything that's going on all over the world. It's not just happening here in the U.S. It's happening all over the world. God is calling his children home. Calling his children home. If this really is the, the end of, of all things, should, shouldn't that stir something in, inside of us? D- does the thought of somebody else spending eternity in hell not mean anything to us? Shouldn't, shouldn't, shouldn't we be trying to save, as, uh, uh, share the love of Jesus with as many people as possible? And if so, why aren't we? Why aren't we? Fear probably has a lot to do with it, I would think. Fear of, fear of rejection, fear of ridicule, um, fear of saying the wrong thing. Heaven forbid you should offend somebody. Being human, could it, could it be that maybe we're a little insecure? That maybe we're, we're a little of... of unsure of where we stand with God. Oh, I have good news for you this morning. God wrote you a love letter. It's very short. It has only one word in it. It says, certainly, signed, God. This may be the most uplifting message you hear all year. I know it made my heart sing. And uh, you ever notice that sometimes it's good to be reassured of things that you already know to be true? Honey, you may have forgotten why they're true. Now, you guys all look like the betting type to me. Yep, heavy gamblers, every single one of you. You ever heard, you ever heard of a sure thing? You ever heard of a sure thing? Can't miss, too good to be true, a bet that's so good you can't pass it up. You ever actually place that bet? How'd that work out for you? Mm-hmm, that's pretty much what I thought. This morning, I'm going to introduce you to a sure thing. Can't miss. Carve it in stone. And the best thing is, it's all true. I'm going to give you six things from the Bible that you can be absolutely 100% certain of. No room for doubt. Now, this is all based on lessons that we've been teaching um, on Sunday mornings in the adult growth group. And if you haven't been coming, shame on you. And uh, we'll, we'll expect to see you next weekend. Starts at uh, 10 o'clock. 
but first we've got to start with a little bit of history. Uh, just a little bit. We've got to kind of set the scene a little bit here. You have to understand a little bit about what was going on uh, in the church at the time that John was writing his letters. There were a lot of what John called false teachers, people who were, were either teaching things that were, were either flat out wrong or things that were just a little off the mark. And, and you may be asking yourself, well, what's, what's wrong with that? Most of you will not remember the moon landings of, of the late 60s and the early 70s. And though I was but a wee lad at the time, I was only this high, I remember it like it was yesterday. And, and because of the, the liquid fuel that they were using for rocket propulsion, they weren't able to make very much in the way of course adjustments once the rocket was underway. Which, which, which means that we have to launch precisely at this time, on this day, at this speed, in order to reach the target. They're basically trying to hit a moving car with a BB at a distance of 238,900 miles. See, if the engines had not been fired at exactly the right time, at exactly the right location, the spacecraft would have missed the moon entirely. And because we were planning on slingshotting around the moon and using its gravity to, to propel the rocket back home because it couldn't carry any more fuel than to get it there, there would have been no way to get the astronauts home. If they had missed their window of opportunity, the spacecraft just would have been gone. See, the same principle applies to our Christian walk. When we get off course, even just, just a little bit at the very beginning, you end up way off course down the road. And that's one of the reasons we stress, read your Bible, know what it says so that you can be aware of false teachers. Now, most of these false teachers had fallen away from the church during John's time, but, but their influences were still being felt. He talks more about this later, but this will help get us off to a good start. Everybody say we. we. Say it again. Say we. we. Every time you hear John use the word we, you need to know that he's talking to those who remained in the church, those who didn't go off following the false teachers. In other words, us. Who is us? We. we. Very good. And like I said, the false teachers' lies um, they were still reverberating in the early church. Unfortunately, John gives us some, some, some good litmus tests uh, that we can use to be sure that we're on the right path. Now, most of you at one time have heard uh, some of the promises of God. There's a bunch of different versions of them out there, and some of them are very good. Most of them are biblical and true, but every once in a while, somebody trots out something that, that, that's not so reliable. Have you ever heard this one? When you give your life to Jesus, you'll be rich and have everything you want, and you'll never have to worry about money again. Yeah. Yeah, we, we, we like to make fun of the prosperity churches a lot here. <laughs> um, Jesus does provide a way out of worry, but nowhere in the Bible does it say he's going to make us rich. So, or how about this one? I know you've heard this one. God will never put more on you than you can bear. Uh-huh. See, this one is uh, an actual Bible quote, but it's been taken out of context. It comes from 1 Corinthians 10, 13, and the full quote reads, No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind, and God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. 
but when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. God doesn't promise you that you're, you're not going to have to bear something that's really, really rough. What he promises is that he's going to be there with you every step of the way. Every step of the way. See, it's easy to twist God's promises and, and make them mean whatever you want when you take them out of context. But it doesn't make them true. And I'm going to give you six things this morning that are absolutely certain beyond all question. See, like a good scholar, John cites his sources right off the bat, right at the very beginning. First John 1 John 1.5, it says, This is the message we, and he's talking about the apostles there in that one instance, this is the message that we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. Now in the Bible, light is used figuratively to represent righteousness. And darkness is used to represent sin. And what John is saying here is that God is faithful, just, and incapable of sin. Therefore, anything that God tells you has to be true. Because God is not capable of lying. In him there is no darkness at all, no trace of sin. He is not capable of lying. This is the foundation on which John gives us these six absolute certainties number one we can be certain of forgiveness if we confess our sins he's faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness first john 1 9 we have talked before um many times up here about if then statements we we tend to think of them as as a modern creation because they're, they're frequently used in computer programming languages. If x equals 1, go here. If x equals 0, go here. It gets lost a little bit when it's translated into English, but in the original Greek, the grammar used means that when the first part of the verse is completed, the second part is absolutely guaranteed. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us. See, the word confess is actually a translation of a compound word, which, which means same and say. In other words, to say the same thing or to agree with God that what you've done was wrong, that it was a sin. And when we agree with God, we acknowledge who God is and, and we acknowledge that he's faithful and he's just and that he will do exactly what he says and he will forgive our sins. Forgive actually means sending away, letting go, or freeing. Can you think of a better word picture to describe what God does with our sins when we confess him and agree with him? The Bible tells us that God sends our sins as far away as the east is from the west. <laughs> I'm, no, uh, I'm no mathematical expert, but if you you keep going east eventually doesn't it become west and then become east again and then become west and where does it end it doesn't it's just gone it's just gone and john isn't content to leave it there he says that god will purify us from all righteousness everybody say all everybody say it again all all unrighteousness does god ever do anything halfway no no, God always acts completely. He always finishes what he starts. 
we are forgiven when we confess our sins. That's it. You can carve it in stone. Number two, we can be certain of a relationship. But if anyone obeys his word, love for God is truly made complete in them. This is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. Obedience is not a prerequisite to salvation. It's the result of the Holy Spirit living in each one of us and, and, and changing us to reflect Jesus and causes us to desire to obey his commands. The more we know and love Jesus, the more we want to obey his commands and the more we want to be like him. And John goes on to write, he says, whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. A better translation might almost be love as Jesus did. See, everything that Jesus did reflected God's love to a weary, desperate world. Everything, from the woman at the well to casting out demons, healing the sick, everything Jesus did reflected God's love. And our lives need to reflect that. And later on in verses 9 and 10, John goes on to say, he says, Anyone who claims to be in the light but hates a brother or a sister is still in the darkness. Anyone who loves their brother or sister lives in the light. And there's nothing in them to make them stumble. The more we give in to hate, the harder it becomes to see God and to focus on the things of God and the harder our hearts become to the ways of God. Love enables us to walk in the light. Hate leaves us in the dark. God's love is made complete in us, not just by the absence of sin, but by a lifestyle of, of, of love. Love for God and love for one another. See, we can be certain of our relationship with Jesus when our lifestyle reflects the love and obedience of Jesus. We can be certain. Number three, we can be certain that truth is found in Jesus. John writes, he says, I do not write to you because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it and because no lie can come from the truth. John's writing at this point to, to reassure the church of what they already knew to be true, that Jesus was and is exactly who he said he was, the Son of God, one with the Father, who was sent to pay the price for our sins that we might have eternal life. That's exactly who he is. That's biblical truth in a nutshell. In verse 22, John asked a question. He says, who is the liar? It is whoever denies that Jesus is the Christ. See, there were teachers at the time um, who taught that, that the man, Jesus, became Christ at his baptism. And, and there were others that say that the divine Christ left before or on the cross so that only the man, Jesus, died on the cross not the Son of God. And, and, and even today, there are many who are quick to acknowledge Jesus as a man, but don't believe that he's also God. They completely reject the Bible's teaching about who Jesus is and what he's done. John had a very terse reply to all this. He said, such a person is the Antichrist. Boom. Biblical truth is based on the relationship of the Father to the Son and so do all of us. There's no such thing as faith in God 
without Jesus Christ. To deny Jesus his rightful place as a son of God is the same thing as saying that God's a liar. The Christian doctrine of a loving, personal, fatherly God is entirely dependent upon the revelation of who God is through the person of Jesus Christ. You can't have one without the other. Genuine salvation comes from a permanent relationship with God made possible only through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Only. That's the certain truth that John was conveying to the church, that Jesus was and is exactly who he said he was. Sometimes it's good to be reminded of what you already know, isn't it? All right, number four. We can be certain of victory through Jesus Christ. You, dear children, are from God have over, and have overcome them because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. Now, John was addressing a, a, a particular problem in, in the church. The church was accepting every type of spiritual teaching, but not all spiritual teaching is from God. It's, it's tempting to ascribe any unusual spiritual activity to God, but you've got to remember, Satan is also at work in the world. <clears throat> and we have to be wary of deception. We, we, we have to achieve a kind of spiritual balance between believing everything and believing nothing, being skeptical. And in verse 2, John uh, states one way to determine false prophets. He said it's what they confess about Jesus. He says, every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. For faith to be genuine, it must be a witness to Jesus Christ. For your faith to be genuine, you have to believe that Jesus Christ is who he said he was. Jesus rejected those who called him Lord, but didn't keep his commands. And later on, John says that every spirit that does not accept, uh, acknowledge Jesus is not from God. And the authority behind the false teacher is the spirit of the Antichrist. People with the spirit of the Antichrist either directly oppose Christ or, or, or they try to substitute themselves for Christ. Their, their, their purpose was to deny that Jesus came uh, in the flesh to separate Christianity from its historical basis. The spirit of the Antichrist is alive and thriving and, and doing its best to divide God from his followers. It's a spiritual battle and we fight it every, every single day. And sometimes it gets hard, doesn't it? Sometimes it gets hard. But I have good news for you. We already have victory. See, through his death on the cross and through his resurrection, Jesus already conquered death, sin, and Satan. We know how this story ends. We just have to fight it out until we leave this earth or until Jesus returns. But it's hard sometimes. Oh, it's hard sometimes. John offers us some words of encouragement. He says, you, dear children, are from God and have overcome them. Let's, let's, let's break that down into sections. You, who do you think he means? Us. Dear. Dear is, is, is an affectionate term indicating that we are loved and valued by God. Children. 
a reminder that, uh, that no matter where we are in our journey, we're, we're but young in our spiritual growth or that we're children of God. Are from God. Well, that pretty well answers the last question. Have overcome them. Overcome could also be translated as conquered. Conquered is an interesting word. Uh, in the Greek, the word tense indicates a completed action followed by a continuing result. See, already Christians have experienced some victory. We experienced salvation. We experienced growing more, like, uh, more and more like Jesus through a growing relationship with God. Yet one day we'll experience total victory either at our deaths or at Christ's return. No more death, no more suffering, eternal life with God the Father. Doesn't sound like such a bad deal, does it? See, God is the source of strength for Christians and only through the salvation of Christ can we truly overcome, not by our own limited strength, but by the cleansing, saving power of the cross. John could have left it there. He offered one more piece of encouragement. The one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. We can be certain of ultimate victory because Jesus has already won the battle. It's already done. Number five, we can be certain of God's love. <clears throat> this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. God always acts first. Always. In verse 8, John states that God is love. And that means that all his actions are loving actions. Whether he's blessing us or he's correcting us, it's done out of love. And that, you know, that may sound kind of contradictory when you, you look at it that way. Do you ever punish your children? Do you, do you do it because you hate your children? Possibly. More likely, you do it because you want to teach them. You want them to grow into to responsible adults so that their lives can be better. All of God's actions are loving actions. And when we as believers show God's love to others, it signifies, one, that we are born of God, and two, that we know God, and try to act like him. What a concept. Know God and try to act like him. Jesus, um, <clears throat> I'm sorry, um, good grief. In verse 8, John states the opposite on this. He says, those who don't love is proof that one might claim the knowledge of God, but that knowledge isn't real. You cannot come into a genuine relationship with a loving God without being transformed into a loving person. You cannot. It just doesn't happen. Jesus defined biblical love as loving God completely and loving others as you love yourself. This is the whole of the law. God always acts first. He showed his love for us by sending his son, Jesus. Jesus' coming represents the physical manifestation of God among us. It's, it's, it's the tangible way that, that, that we can see God's love for us. We could touch it. We, could, we, we, we heard its voice and we felt its arms around us. The physical manifestation of God. 
Now, John used the words atoning sacrifice. In the, in, in the Old Testament, most sacrifices had to be made on a yearly basis, had to be done every single year. The word atoning means once and forever. In the South, we say one and done, y'all. Jesus made sure it happened. So we can be certain that God loves us because he sent Jesus to show his love by providing something that only he could give us. Salvation and forgiveness of our sins. Number six. And this may be my favorite one of all. We can be certain of salvation. John writes, he says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life, that you may know that you have eternal life, that you may know that you have eternal life. Is, is there any room for ambiguity in there? Any, any room for, any wiggle room? No. You can know that you have eternal life. In his letters, John was writing to strengthen Christians who, because of the false teachers, largely, w might be tempted to doubt the reality of their Christian experience. Contrary to the false teachers, John taught the biblical truth that Jesus is the only way to God because only Jesus atoned for our sins and then rose victorious from the grave. Only Jesus came from God so that we could know him and his love for us in a tangible, physical form. I know I'm saved because God, the God of the universe, creator, father, the one who is faithful, just, holy, incorruptible, unchangeable, incapable of sin, and cannot lie, told me so. He wrote me a letter. He wrote me a letter. The answer to the question, am I saved, is revealed in the answer to two questions. Does my daily life reflect Jesus' life? And do I live in obedience to God? 1 John 5.11, John writes, God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. The verb tense of has given once again, indicates a completed action with a continuing result. Because Jesus did it one time, it's done, and we reap the blessings of that forevermore. When we were saved, God gave us the gift of eternal life. Nothing we could ever do could earn us that gift, and the gift is present in Jesus Christ alone. No other. And it's our responsibility and privilege as Christians to share their faith with others so that, th that they too can receive the gift. Time is growing short. I fully believe that with all my heart. And God desires that no one, not one, should be left behind. So what's keeping you from sharing your faith with Jesus or with other people? Is it, is it, is it fear, uncertainty? I gave you six things this morning that you can be absolutely sure about, and if that doesn't make you feel good, I don't know what will. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is what I've got for you this morning. Thank you. Would you bow your heads, please, and let's let's 
let's just leave it out of here with a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we love you. We praise you. And Lord, we just thank you for this time that we've had together. Lord, work in our hearts. Help us to incorporate the words that you've given us this morning, words of encouragement, words of love, and help us to share your love with someone else.